Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. Uh, Tuned in this Sunday morning. We miss you actually being here. We had folks in the room last week and... Um, that was uh, fantastic. We're going to do that again in just a couple weeks. November 1st, we're going to have another live service. You'll be able to sign up for that soon. It was great. Uh, we felt like it went really, really well. And so we're going to do that on a regular basis and get everything worked out technically and, um, and try and get back to a place where we can do that um, every week. So that'll be coming up in a few weeks. Next, next Sunday... Uh, after late afternoon at five, we're going to have, we do, we've done this every year, we'll have birthday and business meeting. We'll be 14 years old as a church and it's a chance for us. We've always used it as a chance to get together, share a meal. We won't be sharing a meal, but we'll be having a meal in proximity and, um, and then talk about what God's been doing and pray together as a church family and talk about uh, where we're headed. And so the elders will talk a bit about where we're headed as a church and things that we've been um, praying through and thinking about and talking about. Um, for the future of Oak City Church. And so we invite you to sign up for that. We're going to do that outside, so we're distanced. It'll be next week um, at 5 o'clock. So please, uh, that's in the weekly. If you don't get the weekly, go to the webpage or the homepage and sign up for the weekly, and you'll get all that information. You can sign up for the birthday and business meeting uh, on the homepage as well. We are in uh, continuing in a series called Peter, uh, an every man's guide to spiritual formation. And this is you know, that the, the life of Peter in, um, in a lot of ways is the track that, that all of our walks with Jesus are going to follow and that there's a path to that and a pattern and it's helpful to understand what that pattern is as you're going through that pattern, but also to help the people around you as they're kind of going down that path um, to, to know where they are and to know what comes next. And we're at stage four and um, it's called the inward journey, and and this is I've, I'm I'm not sure that I've ever given this qualifier at the beginning of a message. If you missed last week, you should make sure this week to go back and listen to last week because this is a bit of a two part message. I'm always in a series, so they always build on each other a little bit, but they always stand alone. And this will stand alone, but not quite as well because it's a little bit dependent upon what I said last week because we're talking about. Uh, kind of the, the deep end of the pool and the tough part of the journey. And I've been using the analogy of a marathon. And when you run a marathon, late in a marathon, you hit the wall. And that's just kind of a known phenomenon. And it's a part where it gets really tough. And you're kind of just putting one foot in front of the other, um, trying to make it. And there, there is the inward journey as you hit the wall and things get really hard in the life of faith. And you don't really expect that it's going to happen, which is part of what makes it harder. And so in Peter's life, this happens when Jesus gets arrested and he's on his way to the cross and Peter has no idea uh, what's going on. And that's where we left Peter last week is um, Jesus said, hey, you're all going to deny me. And Peter says, I'll never deny you. And sure enough, he denies him three times and the rooster crows. And this is the scene. The Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he'd said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Um, That's, you know, a scene where Peter um, breaks, and he breaks not just because he's failed Jesus. I believe he breaks because he's just lost. 
He has no idea what's going on. He never expected things to get to this place. He has no idea what comes next. And that's, that's a bit of a description of what it's like to, to hit the wall. In that scene, you have to ask yourself what it would take you to lose your nerve so badly that you denied even knowing your best friend and denied even knowing them in their time of greatest need or how you would feel if your best friend in your time of greatest need <laughs> denied even, like, I don't even know the guy. Never heard of him. Um, what would it take for you uh, to get there? And that's where we are. And that is the deep end of the pool, and that's okay. The Bible spends a lot of deep end, of, a lot of time at the deep end of the pool because we spend a lot of time at the deep end of the pool. And most of the time, I don't, I don't know that we do that very well. And maybe it's because we don't expect it. I talked to uh, a few folks this week about last week's message, who really related to it. And they were like, man, I, I get stage four. I'm either in stage four. I can remember, you know, the season where I was in stage four. And then they made the comment they don't feel like, they don't, either they don't feel like many people get there or they don't feel like many people make it. Um, that was interesting. Now, just to review the, the stages, stage one is the recognition of God. That's the stage where you you come to realize that God matters in your everyday life. He cares about everything, that the gospel is true, that Jesus, you needed Jesus to, to come here and to die on the cross for your sins and to provide you forgiveness and to take away your guilt and your shame and you can have new life in him um, and that he has risen from the dead and, and the, the response there is surrender in that stage. The second stage is the life of discipleship and that's where you start really digging into the gospel and you start realizing it reshapes every aspect of your life. It changes the way you view yourself, the way you view the people around you, the way you view your job, the way you view um, your relationships, the way that you view your stuff. All of things, those things start to get reshaped. And then stage three is the productive life where you start participating in the process um, that Jesus is making disciples of the people around you. And you participate either individually with people he's placed in your life or, or you volunteer via the processes that the church has in place by which disciples are grown, but you're, you're a part of that, you know. And then the inward journey is the fourth stage, and it's where that stuff starts to not make as much sense as it used to or maybe not work the way that you, you thought it did. Um, and so, like I said, I was talking to some folks, and they said I, they didn't think a lot of people got there or made it. And I started to wonder if, if, if um, more people make it than we know about, but we just don't want to talk about it because we don't know what to do with it. And that's part of the reason I'm going through this series is to normalize it and say, yeah, we need to, we need to talk about what it's like in that stage uh, if we're going to get through that stage, you know. Um, I just this week, I, I listened to, and I put this out in the weekly email that I start with, you know, something that I think is interesting and helpful. And so I, I linked an interview with um, a singer named Lecrae, a Christian artist named Lecrae. And man, it, you should listen to that. It's fascinating. And it's fascinating in part because of the stage four stuff, but also um, what he talks about with race, he's an African-American artist <coughs> that occupied a largely white church space for a while, and he talked about what that was like um, and was really interesting. But he talks about going through a season the last few years where he flat told his wife, I don't believe this stuff anymore, like deep stage four. And he, he said he felt like, in hindsight, God was like, hey, it's too late for that. Like, <laughs> you're not doing that. And God didn't let go of him. 
and he's made it through and he just put out a book called restoration and a new album i think with the same title i'm um, talking about where he is and that's he's just plowed through stage four and he's gotten into stage five there's another um uh interview i listened to this week or a little bit of a debate with a guy named john steingard who was a part of hawk's nest i'm not familiar with them but he was a worship leader and he's in that similar space and you can tell he's still wrestling with it and i think that's what he where he is i think more people go through this than than we know go through it i remember talking to a pastor friend a few years ago that i think was probably in the stage four and he asked us the question he's like hey how long is it okay to like fake it till you make it because <laughs> if you're pastoring and you go through stage four you gotta you still gotta get up and preach every week and so how do you do that well um, one of the things i've heard for pastors is they say show your scars not your wounds show your scars not your wounds and um and so it's hard to be going through some of this stuff that feels like a wound while you're um wh while you have to preach about it so that's stage four. It's hard. And I, then last week, I, you know, I left off at like, okay, what do you do in stage four? And I started with just the, the first one is know that you're not alone. And so that's why I say all that stuff about more people are probably going through this or have gone through it than we know about because you're not alone. And, and being alone just makes it worse. Being alone usually makes anything hard worse. And the devil knows that. And so the, de the devil uses alone. He wants us isolated. He wants us thinking you're the only one that's ever going through that because he knows that's going to make it worse. It's going to be harder to get through day by day. It's not good for man to be alone, you know, and that that aloneness, isolation breeds shame. Um, that's addiction gets worse when you think that you're the only one and then it builds on itself in cycles. And and so this is worse when you think that you're alone. And and I think that's part of why in the church we we're, we do so poorly at handling doubt. Um, the opposite of, I don't think doubt is the opposite of faith. I think the nature of faith is that there's some uncertainty. And so there's going to be some level of, of what you would might call doubt. And in the church, you know, at some pockets of the church have just kind of said, no, you, you can't do that. I have a friend who, when he was young, um, you know, and mo moving into his teenage years, he'd grown up in church, and then he just started having questions about how all of it worked, and he asked his parents, and his parents didn't know the answer, so they called the pastor over, and the pastor came to their house and just told them, hey, stop asking questions, like, you shouldn't doubt, and that was it for him, like, he was done with the whole thing, and is to this day done with the whole thing, because they didn't handle that well, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to glorify doubt, certainly, but I also don't want to demonize it, um, faith and, and proof are two different ways of knowing things. You know, my faith is built on lots and lots of evidence. Faith needs evidence and there's good evidence to have faith, but that evidence never rises to the level of, of proof. And that's, again, part of what's hard about stage four is that you've been to stage three and in stage three, the productive life and in stage two, you've seen God do, Peter saw God, Jesus do all these things and so it doesn't make sense to get to stage four where all of a sudden it's, it doesn't seem like it's enough, you know? But I think part of that is discerning between faith and proof and evidence and proof. And it, that can all lead to confidence, um, but I don't know that it, le it leads to an absolute certainty, you know? Uh, there's a, a verse in Hebrews chapter 11, and Hebrews chapter 11 is kind of this great chapter on faith. Um, I mean, it's a fantastic chapter of the Bible, you should read it, but it starts with this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance. You need assurance. You should walk with Christ with assurance. And you have conviction of things that are hoped for. But it's not absolute certainty. Um, and stage four actually is, is helping you get to a greater place of Hebrews 11.1 1, where you have assurance and you have conviction. But it's helping you get there by pointing out that, that stage three typically involves a lot of misplaced confidence in yourself and your own abilities and not in the Lord. <laughs> and stage four is going to strip away your confidence in yourself in order to replace that confidence with something that's even better than that confidence. In Romans uh, 8, Paul writes this, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? And stage four involves like a deeper awareness that there's more than this. It's part of that groaning inwardly, longing for the redemption of our bodies. We've seen the productive life, but there's more. And we want more. And we, that's what we hope for. That's what we long for. We don't hope for things that we already have. We hope for the things that we don't yet have. And that's part of what's going on. Now, here's another thing I would say about what to think about, keep in mind what to do when you're in stage four. And it's know that it won't last forever. Uh, know that it's not going to last forever, that there's something beyond stage four. There is a stage five and a stage six, and they're better, but it's a tough road through to those places. So this is James chapter one. James says, and he's talking about people that lack wisdom. He says, let them ask God for it, but let them ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So again, like I don't want to glorify doubt, but I also don't want to demonize doubt. And he certainly doesn't glorify it. There's a way through it. It's something that you, you shouldn't just rest in and sit in, but you want to move past. This is, describes, you know, seasickness. And you don't want to live a life of faith that's full of seasickness. And that's a bit of what stage four feels like. Now, the characters that I mentioned last week, not just Peter, but Moses and Elijah and Job, they move through it. I showed them in stage four, but they move through it. And so Peter gets through it. You know, he has this moment where the Lord turns, looks at him, he weeps bitterly. Jesus goes to the cross. And then a few days later, the tomb is empty. And the Bible tells us that, that Jesus appears to Peter first. Before the other disciples, he appears to Peter. And then he appears to the 12. And then he tells them, go, to, um, go back up to the Sea of Galilee and wait for me. And I'm going to meet you there. So the disciples go up to the Sea of Galilee and they're waiting for Jesus. And... Uh, they don't know when he's going to show up, and so they go fishing. And, and the way that that's worded, Peter says, I'm going back to fishing, uh, like continuously fishing. Like I'm done with the discipleship thing. I'm going back to fishing. Still want to meet Jesus here, but I'm going fishing. And so he's like, he doesn't know what to do next. He's kind of, he's done. And so Jesus, they, uh, excuse me, the disciples go out on the, on the Sea of Galilee. They fish all night. They don't catch anything. And then in the morning, just as dawn is starting to come up, they see someone walking on the beach, but they can't see him. It's at a distance. Turns out it's Jesus, and he says, hey, cast the, no the net on the other side of the boat. And so they, they do that, and they, they catch more fish than they can haul in. This is a repeat of the stage one scene that we went through a few weeks ago, the first time that Peter really has this realization that Jesus is so much more than he thought he was. And it's 
it's perfect in a way because stage four into stage five feels like you're back at stage one. It feels like this new, deeper awareness of who Christ really is. And so that happens, and they realize that it's Jesus that's over there on the beach. And it says that Peter puts on his cloak, and, and he jumps into the water. And some people think he thinks he's going to walk on water again, because why would you put your clothes on to jump into the water? But he goes over and finds Jesus, and they have breakfast, and then they have this conversation. They finish breakfast, and Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. And he says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. And he says a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus is hammering at his weaknesses in this conversation. Do you love me more than these? Peter's claim at the Last Supper was they might deny you, but I'll never deny you. He has an overinflated sense of his own confidence, and here Jesus brings it back up. Do you love me more than these? Lord, you know that I love you, and you know that I don't love you more than them. But Jesus like, needs him to know that here. And there's three affirmations of his love for Jesus that correspond to three denials that he even knows Jesus. I don't think Jesus needs this stuff. I think Jesus knows that Peter needs it. Uh, he, is, he is stripping away his confidence in his own abilities. He's making him to come to grips uh, with his own limitations. He's making Peter realize, yes, I love Jesus, but I'm still capable of these really horrible things. That is stage four stuff. And you can tell how painful it is for Peter to go through that. In my uh, daily reading this week, I got to John chapter 12, and there's a verse where John says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loses, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's a language we use um, in the church about dying to yourself, and it's kind of hard to figure out, but this is what it is. It's dying to yourself. It's, you know, dying to your confidence in your own capacities and surrendering in a greater way to your dependence upon the Lord. It's Peter saying, I'm not better than anyone else, and I have the capacity to deny that I even know you. <laughs> like, uh, that, that goes deeper than I thought it did, but it drives him to deeper dependence. I was reading a different book this week, and it's about being a pastor, and a line that caught me was this. The guy said, the se- this is the secret for sustainable pastoral work. You need to realize that you've got nothing to give to others that you yourself did not receive. Jesus loves you first, then you love him back by loving his sheep and his lambs in his name and in his stead. And that applies to me as a pastor, that that applies to anybody that is following Jesus and that is called into that stage three, the productive life, to the ministry of Jesus. You need to realize that you've got nothing to give to others that you yourself did not receive. 
And stage four is getting you to a deeper understanding of that. It's not just Peter. Uh, Last week I mentioned Moses and Elijah and Job, and I said those are all like stage three, the productive life. Those guys have like master's degrees, if not PhDs, in the productive life. They have done it. Moses has, you know, done the ten plagues, and he's led the people through the Red Sea, and he still finds himself in what I think is a stage four uh, moment. Elijah has done miracle after miracle. Last week it was the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and the fire coming down, and then the the seven times he sends his servant up because the rain hasn't come for um, for three years, and then he ends up in a cave wanting to die. Job is uh, a blameless and righteous man, the greatest man in all the East. You know they've they've done all that. I um I was thinking about an interview that I saw years ago. A Tom, it was with Tom Brady. It was on 60 Minutes, and he had already won three Super Bowls and had all the stuff and married the supermodel and on national tv he's saying you know what it just doesn't seem like enough like there's got to be something it's not really all that satisfying (laughs) and you're like wait a second what else do you want and these guys are like the tom brady's of the bible you know they're made men what else do you want to have happen and yet they find themselves in stage four moments but they get through them so moses gets out into the desert he has um you know, as I said, he's done the burning bush, the, the ten plagues with Pharaoh and the Red Sea. And the people, uh, you know, start worshiping a golden calf. So he goes up with the Lord and Moses says to the Lord, see you say to me, bring, bring up this people uh, from Egypt to the promised land. But you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name. You've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I, Moses, have found favor in your sight, Lord, please Show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Now, if I'm the Lord, I'm thinking, well, what was the burning bush and the ten plagues and the red? Like, what else do you want to know about my ways? It wasn't enough. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And so Moses, um, uh, God's going to honor that. And he's going to put him in the cleft of the rock. And he's going to pass before him. He doesn't want him to do more things. He wants the Lord. You don't want to see the Lord, the things the Lord can do. He wants the Lord. Um, Elijah, similarly. He, uh, after, all, after all those great things, Jezebel still wants to kill him and so chases him into the desert and he goes into a cave and wants to die. To die. And the Lord said to him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore, to, tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, 
Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Israel. Go back to the work. God wasn't in the big dramatic things. God was in the, the, the still, small whisper, the gentleness uh, of the Lord. This, he doesn't, it's not the big things. He wants the Lord. He wants the Lord. Job, um, you know, Job goes through tragedy, and most of the book is this conversation between friends about how that really works, and then another guy comes in, and God ends up reprimanding the friends and telling them they don't know what they're talking about, and then he, and he tells Job, like, where were you? You know, help me out when I laid the foundations of the earth and gives them this new understanding. And Job gets to the very end of it. And he answers the Lord and says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is like the end of stage four, you know. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. That is a lot to say when you've lost 10 children. Um, Most of the time, when people go through some type of tragic loss like that, their temptation is not to like, magnify the sovereignty of the Lord and God's ability to control all things, but to minimize it. Like, surely you would not have allowed that thing to happen. And he says here, I know now that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's hard. That's the deep end of the pool. Uh, And then he says, this is a question that God had asked Job, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job's repeating the question. He says, here's my answer. I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He was the greatest man in the East and blameless before the Lord, but had uttered things which he didn't understand. Here and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me, which is another question that God gave to him and his response is, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I had heard of you, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The most righteous man in the East had only heard of him. But after going through all these things in this tragedy, he'd seen him. And his response is that he's driven to repentance. It's just not what you expect at that stage. It actually echoes what happens to Peter in stage one where Jesus has him catch all those fish and he's like, away from me for I am a sinful man. It's repentance. But that happens again at the end of stage four and going into stage five. You, you have a renewed understanding of who God is and who you are. Um, the wall, this is you know, from a a book I was reading about this, the wall represents our will meeting God's will face to face. We decide anew whether we are willing to surrender and let God direct our lives. Fundamentally, it has to do with slowly breaking through the barriers we have built between our will and a newer awareness of God in our lives. We've spent our own energy. We've come to the end of our ropes. We are ready to learn about freedom, the liberty of living without grasping of living without grasping. There's an author that I've referenced a few times um, during the series named Dallas Willard. And he, he, um, his advice to another, another pastor that became pretty well known was you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry 
from your life. And that's what comes to mind. Can we live without grasping? I mean, hurry is that we need to control everything. Uh, that's what happens when you move through this level. The struggle between God's will and our wills activates our feelings of self-sufficiency. We sincerely believe that we are in charge and by being or doing good can use our talents to control our own lives. It's worked that way for us for so long. We frustrate ourselves by not recognizing that ultimately if God is to be God in our lives, we cannot be in control. Losing our ego-centeredness inevitably accompanies the journey through the wall and our egos resist vigorously. <laughs> uh, stage four. Here's the next thing in that. Resist the temptation to go backwards. Part of the reason I'm going through this series is to say there is a forwards. We don't have to go backwards because I recognize in myself the temptation to go uh, backwards. And when our egos resist, what we want to do is go back to stage three where we felt like we were productive because in stage four, we don't feel like we are. I was on a pastor's retreat a few months ago. We were talking about this stuff. And, and on that retreat, this week, it was the first time, but it was five days. So Monday and Friday are travel days, and then the three days in between were there. And when we do this, um, we don't talk to each other until noon every day. And, and that's so that that morning time is just us and the Lord. And we're really forced to deal with some stuff. And I saw like a progression over the days in dealing with this specifically. And what I realized was feel like a lot of stage four resonates with me, but definitely stage five does too. And what, and what I told the guys was, I feel like I poked my head through to stage five and I've seen like, man, this is awesome. Like I wanna live in stage five. And stage five, I preached this message right before the 4th of July about how like our indulgence should be the Lord, that David in the Psalms, he indulges in the Lord. The one thing I want, I would ask is to, to be in your courts, like to be in your presence, because that's what I'm made for, you know? And I realized, like I poked my head through and I totally realized that, but then I think, well, wait a second, this stuff back in stage three, like isn't, I gotta get back there and fix that stuff. Um, Cause it feels a little bit like Rome is burning, you know? <laughs> and so I gotta, I gotta fix the stuff. Uh, I can't just sit here and rest with Jesus. And and it, like, it pressed me to this place of recognizing my own overconfidence and my self-sufficiency and what I've been trusting in. And that really I didn't trust that if I went through forward into stage five, that Jesus would take care of the things that I'm concerned about. And that there are levels of trust that I need to learn that I didn't even realize uh, were there. The temptation is going to be to go backwards. Um, to a time and place where you felt like, you know, things were working better, instead of moving forwards to a place of uh, greater dependence. The process of meeting the wall requires going through the wall, not underneath it, not over it, not around it, not blasting it. We must go through it brick by brick, feeling and healing each element of our wills as we surrender to God's will. Our ego and will are transformed and made new. They're not transcended or risen above. We don't learn to get rid of them, but to submit them. We move towards wholeness and holiness. We don't get rid of ego or will. We release them. We let them be turned inside out so that unconditional love can emerge. Uh, 
don't go backwards. We got to go forwards. And then finally, uh, in stage four, you have to recognize the difference between seeking to get things done for Jesus and seeking Jesus. Moses gets to that place, and he doesn't ask for another sign. He asks for the Lord. Show me your glory. I want you. Elijah has a similar experience. There's a line in Jesus' prayer right before he goes to the cross in John 17, where he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is eternal life, that they might know you. Eternal life there is described as a relationship not a place that you go to, not even a time. It's a relationship. And I think we know that, or we know we should know that, but we don't know that. We know that life is more than a series of accomplishments or an accumulation of stuff, that what's most important, you know, what you're going to care about on your deathbed isn't that you stay late at work. It's your relationships that are going to matter. But we have such a hard time living that out. And he's saying that's That's the case with your relationship with the Lord. It's just relationship. That's the thing that matters. That's eternal life. And stage four is pushing you through to stage five and stage six where that that is all that matters. And that's a, a step of maturity. I think when we come to Jesus, Jesus is, I don't know, maybe inevitably when we start walking with Jesus, a means to our end. And that can be a means to meaning in life or purpose in life. It can be a means to forgiveness, which he is all those things. It can be a means to peace. It can be a means to community. Um, And he is all those things. But he can't just be a means to the end. He's the end. And you grow into realizing that this is what you're made for is relationship with him. And that's the ultimate. And, And stage four is moving you to that place. I think in stage four, uh, you do start thinking about heaven more than you've thought about it before because you realize the limits of stage three productivity. Stage three is never going to make God's kingdom a full reality on earth. And you have some hidden hope that that's going to happen. And no matter what you get to, like it's it's not enough. And so you end up um, you know, thinking there's got to be more. I, um, I used this uh, uh, probably three, four months ago in a message, but it was C.S. Lewis's line about unfilled desires and how you get to a place like Tom Brady did where you have the things, but the things don't work anymore. And it could be your marriage, your friends, your job, your body, your kids, your stuff, yourself, whatever it is. You think, I have that, and it's good, but it's not enough, so I want an upgrade, you know? Um, and stuff is finite, but you're infinite. And so everything that you have that's finite is going to reach its limits. Uh, and, and I think that can happen with your understanding of God. Not with God himself, but your understanding seems insufficient. And so Lewis says you have a choice to make. At that point, you can switch those things out. You know, you can switch out your marriage or switch out your stuff or switch out your job and see if you can find something that satisfies you more. And he says you'll become driven, but you'll also become obnoxious and controlling. (laughs) But that's an option. You can give up hope on ever being satisfied and just become kind of depressed and lifeless or unmotivated. Or you you can begin living this life in light of what the Bible says about the next life. 
And Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I think when Paul says we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, in this hope we were saved, hope that is seen is not hope, who hopes for what he sees. We know there's something more, and we come to a greater acceptance that the something more is not here. And that's hard. And there's a grief in that to say it's never going to be enough here, but the more is there. I think about Hebrews 11, the chapter I referenced earlier, and it goes through some real specific heroes of the faith and ways that they express faith and how God honored their faith. And then it goes through a general list of folks that expressed faith and the way really they were rewarded and productive in this life. But then the end of it is these people that expressed faith, but then like horrible things happened to them. Like they were martyred for their faith or burned or one of them says they were sawn in two and you're like, ooh, I don't want that. But that's that's part of it, stage four, like realizing that this is not, this really is not the end. Realizing that when Paul says, to live as Christ and to die as gain. He means it. And that's not just a verse that you put on a plaque and slap on your wall. Like, that's true. And stage four into stage five is driving you to the place of that realization uh, and deeper. I, um, I was thinking this week about Peter post stage four. And, and so just after this, Jesus says, hey, I'm leaving. He's ascending to heaven. Um, and you guys have a ministry. You're going to carry it on, go and make disciples. But don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes, and you'll know it when he gets here. And he tells them to wait. And so they wait for a period of time in the upper room in Jerusalem until Pentecost, and the tongues of fire come down, and the Holy Spirit comes. I thought, man, Peter, post stage four, deals with that a whole lot better than Peter pre-stage four. (laughs) And I think his lack of confidence in his own ability to do things probably dramatically improves his ability to wait on what Jesus has told him to wait for and to realize we got nothing if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up. And that's what happens in this stage. Peter, um, not long after that, is going to get this vision about um, God making clean things that they consider unclean. And the biggest debate in the early church was whether the church was just for the Jewish people or whether it was for non-Jewish people is, is the biggest debate in the New Testament. And, and, you know, God had said throughout the Bible, you're going to be blessed to be a blessing to the world. That's why I chose you, Israel. And, but it's hard for them to get that. And Peter's the one that gets the vision that says, what I've made clean, don't consider unclean. And I wonder if going through stage four dramatically helped him receive that message and then communicate it to other people. And I'm confident that um, it did. And he's open to that and what God might do because he has a diminished confidence in his own ability to accomplish things. And that's part of what happens. I'm going to finish with this quote I had read from this book last week. They found the secret and it's 20 Christian icons that um, go through something really similar. And this one is uh, Adoniram Judson Gordon, who founded Gordon-Conwell College. But this is post-stage four. This is where he gets to. It says, instead of praying constantly for the descent of a divine influence, 
there was now a surrender, however imperfect, to a divine and ever-present being. Instead of a constant effort to make use of the Holy Spirit for doing my work, there arose a clear and abiding conviction that the true secret of service lay in so yielding to the Holy Spirit that he might use me to do his work. I'm going to read that last bit again. Instead of a constant effort to make use of the Holy Spirit for doing my work, there arose a clear and abiding conviction that the true secret of service lay in so yielding to the Holy Spirit that he might use me to do his work. Father, I pray for, for us. Um, I trust that there are a lot of people, um, I, I'm sure there are a lot of people that have no idea what this is about, and I'm, I'm happy for that, and that someday you'll bring this back to their remembrance and, and, um, and they'll understand and make sense of what they're going through. But I trust that there are a lot of people that know exactly what this is about and feel like they're alone. Um, and I pray that they would know that they're not, that you're with them, but that they're around people that are going through the same thing, God. And man, I pray for this to become our reality, that we would become less confident in ourselves, in our own stage three abilities, Lord, and that we would become surrendered at a deeper level that we would recognize the ways in which we have asked the Holy Spirit for help in doing our work, and that we would arrive at a place where we yield ourselves completely to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit might use us to do his work, Lord. God, bring us to the place where we don't, we don't want to see the spectacular things. We don't it's not the productivity that we long for, God. What we long for more than anything is you. We long for fellowship with you. We indulge in you, and we are satisfied and content and joyful in you. Thank you that you have made us for yourself, that you redeemed us by the blood of Christ, that through his resurrection you've given us the hope that you have the power over sin and death, and that you've called us into relationship with yourself. We love you. We long for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.